You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So before I bring my guest on today, I wanted to lay out a few facts for you because this is somewhat related to my guest and what his organization does. Did you know that as an industry, unions collect around $10 billion per year in union dues? And did you also know that the vast majority of unionized workers across the nation and I'm talking greater than 90%, never actually voted to become unionized, but they went to work at already unionized employers, and in many cases, again, the majority, most did not have a choice as to whether or not they're paying union dues because they live in what are referred to as non-right-to-work states. Now, I used the term around $10 billion a few seconds ago because that's actually the most recent data I could find, which was from around 2020. And we know that unions lost more members during the pandemic, and they're only just now starting to recapture them. So we don't have actual up-to-date info. Suffice it to say that unions are a multi-billion dollar year industry. Now, add to that the fact that, as you probably know, Last Friday evening, Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, I keep wanting to call her Gretchen Wilson for whatever reason. Well, Gretchen Whitmer just signed into law a repeal of the state's right-to-work law that has been around for about 10 years, giving workers the choice whether they pay union dues or fees or not. And given that there's an unknown number of Michiganders, I think that's how you say it, who may be now facing the prospect of either paying union fees or being fired from their jobs, the numbers of union members paying union dues should increase the union bank accounts to some degree, at least in Michigan. So the reason for that is for those of you that are not familiar with union contracts in right-to-work states, a lot of those contracts that were in Michigan already have built into them sort of a hidden clause that says something to the effect of that if the state or federal law changes and right-to-work is no longer in effect, all employees covered by that collective bargaining agreement or that contract must now become members and remain members of the union in good standing, which means paying union dues or fees within 30 days or 60 days or whatever's in the, the actual contract as a condition of continued employment. In other words, in most cases, unions do not have to go back and reopen contracts to suddenly suck in the union dues. It's already built in. And in fact, as right to work repeal was signed into law in Michigan only on Friday, I'm willing to bet that a lot of letters are being sent out this week to people in Michigan stating they either have to join the union or pay the union as a condition of employment or find another place to work. As a result of this, it kind of begs the question of what kind of resources are out there for workers who might be stuck in a predicament like this or workers in a unionized environment who are 
under the threat of termination required to pay union dues or financially support a union that they don't agree with, that's failed them, or whatever the case may be. So as you know, employers out there have a lot of different resources. They can tap into attorneys, consultants, HR, or trade associations, um, a whole bunch of different resources. But what does that do for the lonely member who or members if they have questions or need resources? Well, fortunately, I've lined up a couple of guests this week from a couple of different organizations to address the choices and the resources that workers like those in Michigan have at their disposal, whether they're in Michigan or anywhere else. So joining me today is Keith Williams. He's a senior vice president for the Center for Independent Employees, or CIE. The Center for Independent Employees, according to their website, is a 501c3 legal defense foundation that provides legal representation and aid to independent employees who are opposed to union oppression in their workplaces. They've got a presence in all 50 states, and they've worked with employees of private and public entities across the nation and dealt with most of the major unions, including the UAW, Steelworkers, Teamsters, SEIU, NEA, and others for over 20 years. Their customers, so to speak, are employees who contact them directly. They're not agents of the employer. They're agents of the employees. Now, I've known about CIE for years and know, have known a couple of their folks personally, but I've never actually gotten into what they do. And as Keith and I have been communicating back and forth here and there for a little while now, I thought it would be a good idea to bring him on to Labor Relations Radio. And now, in the wake of Friday's news up in Michigan, it seems more timely. So here's Keith Williams. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Keith Williams of Center for Independent Employees, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Peter. So I'm somewhat familiar with CIE, um, and I've, I've known about you guys for a long time, but it'd be helpful for the listeners to know what the Center for Independent Employees is and what, what you guys do and, and how you got into this. <laughs> well, I guess the the uh, the quick answer as far as CIE goes is um, CIE basically provides free legal aid and resources to employees who are opposed to unionization or opposed to union oppression in their workplace. So um, there's a mechanism out there for unions to get in, uh, but what do employees do when they no longer feel that the union that's in their workplace represents them and they want to get them out? Um, so, you know, I, am sure your listeners know how complicated that process is. Um, so CIE basically fills that void. We, when employees reach out and need help removing a union, uh, we basically provide the, the roadmap to get them there and the legal resources to get it done. So does the, does most of your, I don't think you call them clients cause you're not a law firm, right? But do, do most of your customers, so to speak, the employees, are they already unionized or do you help them on the front end if they get it targeted by a union to come in as well? Yeah, I mean, again, as long as it's employee driven, um, it could be either way. Um, union avoidance is certainly a piece of that. Um, typically, though, our our folks, when they reach out, it's because there's been some issue, some ongoing um, pain point that the union just no longer really serves the membership and they're ready to get them out. So, so they reach out to you mostly. 
Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, how'd you get into this? <laughs> that's the longer, that's the, uh, the longer answer, the longer story. Um, I was a teacher for over 20 years and high school English and, uh, out here in, in, uh, rural Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania area, as I like to say, mm-hmm. kind of the, the central part of the state. And, um, we were a pretty respectful district in terms of whether you were a union member or non-union member. We have 500 districts in Pennsylvania. And um, back in 2013, 2014, we were one of only about 30 districts that were still um, open shop, meaning Mm. non-union teachers were not being forced to pay agency fees. And, uh, Two years into a four-year contract, the budget was tight. The board went to the union and said, would you be willing to renegotiate the remaining two years of the contract? And they agreed to an MOU. And as part of that MOU, um, the and, and I know the push came from the state level, NEA affiliate, the PSEA here in Pennsylvania, um, they looked over the shoulder of the local and said, hey, uh, you've got about 45 teachers here who aren't in the union. And... Uh, they're not paying union dues. They're not paying agency fees or anything. So that's, you know, one line item in the MOU equates to about a $21,000 a year extra income for the PSEA. Um, so they they negotiated that line into the contract, unbeknownst to us, of course. And, and frankly, a lot of the membership didn't realize what agency fees were either. Um, you know, most folks are just looking at the bottom line. They want to know they're going to have more or less money in their paycheck or if the benefits are going to be better or worse. How so many, that line, how that many line teachers, sort of, how many teachers were we talking about in terms of, was that a hundred person district, you know, unit, or was it smaller, larger? Um, we're well, a triple a school district here in Pennsylvania. So kind of an average size, our graduating classes are about 250, 250 students. So, Roughly 23% of the faculty were non-union. Okay. Yeah, that's and, what I was wondering. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you start you start running those numbers, and, and there's some other opportunities that you start to see. And uh, basically what happened, we, we found out, and I learned about my quick lesson in, in labor was an email that was sent to us by uh, the union leadership saying, as per the terms of the MOU, uh, the school district is now – an agency shop school district and you're required to pay your fair share fee in the amount of $435. The local has agreed to waive their portion. So first of all, we were like, oh, wait a second, they can do that. You know, this is again, pretty fast. We're talking 2013, 14. And um, second of all, I thought it was interesting that the the local had agreed to waive their portion of it. So it, it told me a couple of things very quickly where the push was coming from. Um, but also the other interesting thing it told me was that the union, when they sent the email out, did not blind copy everyone. They carbon copied us. So for, oh, really? for, for, for all your uh, union organizers out there listening, make sure you blind copy people so you can maintain the illusion of solidarity. Uh, <laughs> basically, I hit reply all and I had the whole list of all the non-union members. And we effectively I didn't I didn't have the terminology for it at the time. Again, I was green to the labor space, but essentially what we did as non-union employees, we we ran a corporate campaign or threatened a corporate campaign against the union in the district is ultimately what mm-hmm. happened. And then dropped agency fees when the contract 
let ended me, and uh, became the only district to ever do that. So. Let me pause you back up for a second. Um, so define how you run a corporate campaign against both the union and the school district. <laughs> and for, for the listeners, uh, corporate campaign is essentially a death by a thousand cuts as it's been described, but it's like a multi-pronged attack, if you will. Yeah. Well, so that's fascinating doing that in a public school setting. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny. I, I honestly, I never figured that out until I got more involved on the private sector side, you know, now that I'm, now that I'm doing more NLRA stuff, as opposed to, you know, just doing public employees at the state level, I'm starting to, I'm starting to get into the weeds of all of this. And I Mm -hmm. understood what we did. I just, like I said, I didn't have the vocabulary at the time, but essentially what happened was a, I guess a realization that there was this very vocal militant portion of the faculty who were speaking on behalf of everybody, and you had a, a board and an administration that agreed to this. And I said, you know, again, we're in, I'm in a rural part of Pennsylvania, and I went to them and said, look, how do you think the community is going to receive this? How do you think the media is going to receive this when our quiet little school district winds up in the news because you just extorted 45 teachers to, you know, to support your progressive political agenda and uh, your, your elected school board and administration are complicit in this. And I had some connections at the time up in uh, Harrisburg. And so I did have, I did have some media connections and, and some of those types of resources available to me. Um, but yeah, essentially it was, it was threat of media attention. If there's one thing a, a school really does not want to be bothered with, it's, you know, being in the middle of the media, everybody has enough headaches these days without being plastered in the media. So, right. It was, it was sort of a, a, a you know, using whatever leverage we had to say, Hey, this is wrong. And we're going to make an example of you if you don't drop it. So let me back up to the start of this story for a second, because you you started this by saying the union need, or I'm sorry the the school board needed some concessions essentially right their tight budget so on so the union essentially agreed to cut something in exchange for agency fees is that correct yeah that's that is essentially what happened and I you know frankly if you were to ask me to go back to 2013 14 and tell you exactly what concessions were made um i don't remember the specifics but i i i think it had something to do with freezing uh you know there was a there was a wage increase in the contract and i think they they froze that um that was that was one of the one of the pieces yeah, that's interesting because it's yeah. A lot of folks don't understand that dues sometimes is more important than what the members' benefits or wages are. Yeah, right. And the ability to get well in the private sector, if you don't have a union security clause in states that are not right to work states, you know, a lot of times that's a strike issue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, interesting. So that yeah, was so that back was... in twenty thirteen fourteen, and he succeeded. Mm-hmm. We did. So what happened from there? Well, the the other piece in that that was I realized, okay, 23% of the faculty are non-union. 
right? The 30% triggers a petition. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was going, I went full blown agitator at this point. I was like, ah, I don't care. You know, if we have 30%, 31%, if we get to file a petition that, that makes a statement, whatever. So I wasn't, I hadn't grown into the strategic, the more strategic mentality yet. You know, I was just out there screaming into the wind. Um, but I also realized as a non-union teacher for most of my career, I joined my first year, by the way, we can go back to getting into why teachers join, but I did join my first year and then left for, you know, the rest of the time. But I also realized most of us weren't necessarily opposed to the local. It was the idea of unified dues and the fact that, you know, back in 2016, 17, I think is the last time I really drilled down into, into the dues breakdown, but only about 5% of a teacher's dues in our district were going to the local. 95% of dues were being sent to the state and national, and the local is who does most of the work. So, right. you know, it was it was one of those, like, look at this, you know, take all the politics aside about out of it and set all that aside and just look at it practically speaking. If you do this locally, you get the politics out, you get the $250,000, $300,000 salaries out of it, there's a $16 million building sitting at the foot of the state capitol that they have to heat and cool and maintain and provide security for, and they've got to buy their parking garage, you know, swipe cards, $200 a month. You know, they're paying for all this overhead that we as a local don't have to pay for. So it's just a broken model, guys. So there were a lot of us, you know, union and non-union, who really saw the waste at the state and national level and always made the argument, why don't we just do something locally? And so I started to reach out. I said, well, this is an opportunity. Now we got a wedge issue. This is an opportunity to maybe get the NEA out of our school district. And so I went all over. I mean, I used, I exhausted my resources and my ask was, Hey, look, I don't think we'll have the votes to decertify a union, but I think we'd have the votes to disaffiliate, or decertify the NEA and do something independent. And again, back at the time, it was very much a binary mentality, unions good, unions bad. Nobody wanted to entertain the possibility that maybe there was a third option. And so I went I went looking to see who could help me with the third option, and at the time there really wasn't anybody out there. And you know, we we essentially let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I had, I think, I truly believe in that moment had an opportunity to create an independent local separate and apart from the NEA or AFT and completely break away from, from those guys. But, you know, it was at the time it was difficult to find anybody who could help make that happen. And I was, I was just a high school English teacher and cross country coach with 96 research papers on his desk. You know, I didn't have time to dig into the weeds. So, yeah, there's the whole thing about having to work at the same time. Right, right. There is that. <laughs> so what what'd you guys wind up doing? Well, we, for that two-year span, so from the 2013-14 school year till the contract ended in 2016, we became an agency shop district. Um, and those of us who were non-union members, uh, they did get a few who flipped. There were a few. But the bulk of us uh, organized and figured out how to navigate the Hudson Notice, which was a big, bulky document that explained how to make sure that your forced dues could be 
sent to a charity or some other option. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty intimidating document. Obviously, you know, the goal is, well, hey, if you're paying 80% of full union dues, just pay the extra 20% and get the right to vote. Um, that's that's the goal, you know, on, on the, the union side. But um, we were all incensed, furious enough that we were willing to go through all the minutia and, and the exercise of trying to figure out where else we could park the park the forced fees. Um, so we did that for two years. And then at the end of the two years, got a call from the union president saying, hey, uh, come on down and let's have a conversation. And told me that they had dropped agency fees from the contract at the end of the 2016 contract. And um, I didn't think it was a big deal, but apparently it was the only time anybody has ever removed agency fees from a contract in a school district once they were put in. Uh, um, and then, of course, 2018 rolls around and, and the Janus decision makes that practice unconstitutional. Um, but that's that's essentially how I got into all of this was was through those those couple of years of uh, dealing with agency fees and the realization that unions could at the time and wanted to, you know, forcibly take money from us to subsidize their political agenda. So Interesting. So what got you out of teaching and into what you're doing now? In 20, well, 2016, 17, um, I got more engaged. I started to do some testimony for, um, employee rights notification, um, issues like that, um, in the public sector. In Pennsylvania or nationally? In in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, So I, yeah, I testified at the the state legislature um, on employee rights notifications and things like that. And it, it always perplexed me, you know, looking back, I was surprised at the, at the pushback we would get for just simply telling people what their rights were. You know, why is that such an issue, right? They assume the sale when you come in as a new teacher that you're going to join the union. It's okay to assume the sale, but it's not okay to tell people they have options. So, you know, I, I took that idea of Mirandizing, right? We read people their rights. We Mirandize them. We don't assume they know their rights. And and it always kind of stuck with me. Why don't, why don't unions want to tell people their rights? And I, I just sort of went down this rabbit hole of, that's a very, that's a very big topic. Yeah. And at at the time, right, I didn't know I'm a high school English teacher. What do I know about all this stuff? So yeah, I start going down the rabbit hole and um, I had an opportunity. There was a, uh, the practice of ghost teaching. They refer to it doing, doing union business on school time. Um, There was a, an area district here that was, they had a full-time, basically their, their union president was doing full-time union work, but accruing pension credit at the same time. So as a vested member of the pension system, I had, you know, I had the ability to go in and say, Hey, you shouldn't be doing this and basically file a lawsuit and and help to end that practice. Um, So ghost teaching, that's a new term because usually it's called official business or, um, you know, out on union business in the private sector. Teaching sounds better. I mean, the idea is they're 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 on the payroll for the school district as a teacher, right? But they're not actually teaching, right? So they're they're potentially hitting the taxpayer twice because they're being paid to do a job they're not doing, and they're collecting pension credit that they really shouldn't be accruing, uh, but they're also 
working against the taxpayer, right? Because unions negotiate against the taxpayer. That's why Janice essentially ruled, you know, that agency fees were unconstitutional. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a, uh, a situation where the, this, the school district's president spent time in school, not teaching, but just doing union work. So sure. drumming up yeah. grievances and stuff. That's it. Yeah. Some of us who are former union people did that way back years and years ago. <laughs> so I have, I have a quick question for you. You mentioned this. Why did you become a union member in your first year or two? Because And I'm asking this because I've had this conversation with a buddy of mine that I grew up with who's now a high school teacher out in the West. Mm-hmm. And I want to see if it's the same reason. Yeah, it's you come in as a, a young 20-something, and it's your first day. And, uh, you know, all the tables are there. The local, the local credit union is there, and the insurance companies are there. You know, your first district in-service day, and, and your, your supervising teacher puts their arm around you and says, hey, you really ought to think about, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if, you know, somebody makes an accusation? What if there's a, an administrator who has it out for you? What if this? What if that? And very quickly, you know, you buy into the, oh, my gosh, yeah, like I, I, I need something um, and walk you over to the table. And again, it's almost the assumed sale. Um, it's it's very much kind of a fear sale. And um, that so, was that was in my experience, how I joined my first year anyway. So pause on that for a second, because in, I'm actually going to have he and another teacher on the podcast at some point, just kind of like compare notes. But mm-hmm. what you just said is it's basically protection. If somebody accuses you something, right. Mm-hmm. Hey, you talk about students, mm-hmm. students, administrators, and they, you know, I would make the argument. It, it was interesting to hear, you know, some of the more knowledgeable teachers would say, well, the school district has insurance. And they would come back and say, well, do you really think the school district's going to protect you? Like they're going to cover themselves, you know, not, not thinking you are the district, you are an agent of the district and their insurance does cover you. Um, nobody really stopped to think that one through, but it very much is. It's a, it's a fear cell. Um, and the idea is that you need liability insurance and the union's going to give you the best liability insurance out there and there's no one else and no other options that exist. So that's what that's what my buddy said. And I'm going back. He and I grew up together, worked construction, worked, were union met, uh, members before. Well, I was a rep at one point. He was a rep. But anyway, long story short, he stayed with our former employer and then left, got his teaching degree, and now is a high school teacher not necessarily pro-union because he's in Arizona, which is a right-to-work state, but he joined because the the teacher's union has an insurance that is kind of second to none, or at least he thought, and so he joined because if he gets accused of something, and that right. that fear factor that you're talking about, I think, is a yep. huge, huge draw towards teacher's unions. Whereas if there's other organizations, which there are, that offer that type of insurance to teachers that are not necessarily unions, like that's a that's kind of a, a big deal. I think it's the American 
Association of Educators or something like that has a Association of American Educators, AAE. Yeah. 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 And, and so it's funny when you you start to get into the alternatives. Um and you know, having worked when I left the classroom, I was recruited out of the classroom in 2018 to lead a startup organization at the time and kind of provide the blueprint and the business plan for that going forward. Um, and one of the things I said very early on was, look, no one's going to leave something for nothing. So there were all these opt-out programs, you know, just leave right. your union, give yourself a raise. Like to me, that's, that is so much cognitive dissonance. People don't understand the market. You know, they, you, you're trying to sell a product people don't really want. And, you know, I think we tend to view it as you're selling freedom. Hey, we're just selling you freedom. People are going, no, as a teacher, right. Freedom is that's the boogeyman, right? That's the the scary. I, I was an English major, you know, English teacher. So I, I always use the analogy of Lord of the flies mm-hmm. and in Lord of the flies, you end up with, you know, that you have the hunters, right. And they become this savage tribe. Well, why do they incrementally gain power and how do they incrementally gain power? They, they gain it through fear because there's the beastie out there in the woods, right? The, the dark unknown creature that's out there lurking in the woods that is scarier than the devil we know. Right. So we know that we know that our, our savage tribe is not good. You know, we, we can see where this is going, but what's out there that we can't see that's the really scary stuff. So we'll stick with the devil we know to protect us from what else is out there. And, you know, that's that's where I get into, you know, again, trying to sell alternatives. Basically say, hey, look, the union is selling you liability insurance. You can go out and get liability insurance for a third of the cost. And to your point, you have Association of American Educators. There's Christian Educators Association. Uh, which is more of a faith-based national group. But then you've got a whole slew of state-based associations right. as well. So, right. you know, I would always say, you know, when, when teachers come to me and say, well, I want liability insurance, that's my concern, I would always invoke, it's actually a misattribution, but the Henry Ford quote that if if I asked people what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. Right. right? So we go out and we ask teachers what they want. They come back and say, hey, we want they want liability insurance. So we sell them liability insurance. Well, what they really want is to know that if they're on the hot seat, they have somebody physically sitting there next to them. That's what they really want. And so a lot of these, a lot of the solutions that have been proposed out there for how to deal with teachers unions and show teachers that, hey, look, it's safe, it's safe to go without, you know, the the hunters, Jack and the hunters, right. in Lord of the flies, it's, it's, it's safe to go without this abusive tribe. Those same organizations are also simultaneously saying public schools are failing. We need to get rid of tenure. Um, we need to reform the pension system, right? Those are all perceived threats by a teacher. So why right. should I believe you when you tell me it's safe to come out? So there's this, there's this weird dynamic going on right now that, you know, it doesn't change any of the facts, but, relationships are important. And I think that's oftentimes where we get hung up when it comes to talking to teachers, not to divert totally into politics, but it's been interesting over the last year or two, this, um, you know, I just saw an article this morning about parents bill of rights, you know, with respect to the education system. And you were seeing this across different, I think I saw 32 States. There's some form of parents bill of rights, 
which are mm-hmm. getting into what kids are being taught, right? So you've got this whole, on the right, you've got this attack on what's happening in the education system. And now the unions, Randy Weingarten specifically, is saying, you know, stop attacking teachers. So now mm-hmm. the right has set the union up as being the protector of teachers, which is one of those strange little political things. And how are you going to get teachers to support you if you're on the right when they are perceiving you as the attack, uh, the attacker, right? Right. And right. that's the dynamic you're talking about. Just a little bit more political today. Yeah. Well, there's a, uh, there's a March, a March of 2022, I believe it was. I, I keep this with me all the time. It's a Washington Examiner um, magazine from March, March 22nd to 29th, 2022. Um, if you're a pack rat and you still have it in a box somewhere, pull it out. But the cover has parents versus teachers. And it right. has this caricaturized, um, like crazy teacher who is pulling this child from the arms of her parents. And there is this, I think that's the unforced error that, that I'll say the right has made that it's a parents versus teachers or parents versus schools thing. And the teachers get caught up in the middle of it. Um, yeah. It's easy, you know, it's easy to turn things into a binary argument. Sure. And we like that because it's, it's a good talking point, but now you've got, you know, school boards that are coming after teachers and you have parents who are, seemingly coming after teachers and ultimately who benefits from the adversarial relationship unions. unions. Right. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to watch kind of from afar. And you and I, I think we communicated about this on LinkedIn a little bit. I think that's a mistake that the right made back in 2010 ish timeframe is they deemed all public sector workers or unionized workers as being bad. And yeah. It, and it just kind of like it's fed right back to the unions because if you're demonizing police unions, you're demonizing fire unions, you're demonizing teachers unions without really, I guess, taking a step back and looking at it, you're alienating people that could potentially be on your side. Sure, sure. And it's, you know, I think having gone from the classroom into the policy space and now more exclusively into the labor space, it's it's an issue of silos, and I think for those of us, you know, Peter, I'm including you in this, who have, we've kind of run the gamut of all of it, um, yeah. you can see the silos, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of people who went straight out of their Ivy League schools into internships in D.C. and then wrote white papers and never left. Yeah. Um, but they but they think they can talk to teachers or to public, sec, you know, public service workers, first responders, and they'll understand like it, there's not, there's not a lot of crossover there. And I think that's, that's part of the problem. Well, it's, you know, we could talk about this a little bit too, but it's like the whole right to work, you know, fight it's either or, and a lot of people on, on either side is it it's an either or, and, mm-hmm. you know, having been a union rep in a right to work state, I understand both arguments. And right. so it's just, you know, I don't view right to work as big a threat as a lot of the union brass does, because I think it makes the union work harder to earn their members, which could be said in the public sector with agency fee, et cetera, like earn your money. 
Right. Right. Well, and that, that'll be the interesting thing, you know, for us as CIE, as an, as an employee driven, you know, decertification organization, um, with Michigan going right to work, are we going to see more of a push from employees now to decertify? Will they? You might see some, I think the other, and I actually have a, a episode coming up later this week to get more into that. Um, but you also have the opportunity to not just um, talk about decertification. There's also the UD petition, which is the the election to remove union security shop clauses. Mm-hmm. Like you can still have your contract and not have forced membership or forced fees just through a simple election on the works on the workplace. It's an NLRB election, right? Right. Yeah, it's. It, it, it's an interesting space. Like I said, I'm I'm just starting to chip into the deeper sides of it, having having gotten in from the public sector employee side. Now right. I'm, you know, private private sector management side. I'm private sector employee side and public sector employee side. It's it's a lot of fun. And if you would have told me five years ago, I'd be telling you labor was fun. I'd have thought you were crazy. But here we are. Yeah, I never grew up grew up thinking I'd be doing what I'm doing. So. <laughs> The, um, you know, you mentioned something a minute ago using the Lord of the Flies analogy and having been involved in deserts numbers of times over the years, I've always found it fascinating. Um, and a lot of people on the management side don't really get this, but unions, when you're looking at a decertification and the union has been petitioned or the received the petition, right? They typically want to block the election. So they'll, you know, file charges against the company for instigating it or whatever. But from the employee perspective, they're being campaigned on by the union the entire time throughout the desert. And it, no matter how stinky and ugly and corrupt that security blanket is, that union, you know, because the union is always telling them, well, if you decertify us, you're going to be employees at will and the company's going to be able to fire you whenever they want. So what happens is it becomes... A somewhat of a trust issue because I'm giving up this stinky old corrupt security blanket. And a lot of workers don't want to do that at the end of the day. Sure. No matter how I hate this guy who shows up in his Cadillac and chomping on a cigar, giving a caricature, caricature, sure. <laughs> but um, you know, it's still that, that like, I don't really want to do that. You know, I'm afraid of the yeah. company, the big, bad company. Right. Well, it's it's fear. Fear is such a powerful driver of so yeah. many things. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think for for teachers, you know, if you want to if you want to go back to the education specific piece, too. There's a lot of mid career teachers, especially who you get to a point where you think all I've ever done is work with kids. What else can I do? And so there's this you know, teachers generally go into teaching to stay there. Once, once you hit that five-year break point and you've made it past that, most teachers are in it for the long haul and, you know, they've proved their mettle. They can, they can handle a classroom. Um, again, I'm generalizing. I know there's exceptions and I can, there's exceptions in my mind as I'm saying that, but, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's definitely a feeling of I'm trapped. Where else can I go? What else can I do? And I think to the degree that we can empower teachers to show them or anybody for that matter, to show them, Hey, look, there are other options. Like your, your skill sets are transferable, uh, whether that's right, in, right. in corporate training or, or whatever, everybody needs teachers. 
Um, salespeople need teachers. So um, that's certainly, a, I think, a, a valuable angle to make sure that people understand as well. You know, if you're a teacher that's on the fence about all of this stuff, you're not trapped. It's not like you're going to leave the union and lose your job and you're going to be living in a cardboard box. Um, you know, I taught no. for 21 years. I was a union member for one in Pennsylvania. So we're pretty blue state these days. So, yeah. Yeah, except for the center of the state. Except for the center and the, it, and the northern tier. You got you got Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and the rest is Alabama's, so they used to say. <laughs> that's, that's basically it, yeah. yeah. Um, so walk me through, like, your typical engagement with CIE. You, you get a call or an email from an employee in XYZ company, and you don't get involved with anything with respect to the company, right? No, because this is all employee driven, right? So if the company gets involved, then it becomes, you know, NLRA. We, right. We're, we're falling under the, the hand. You become an agent of, yeah, you become an agent right. of the employer. So you right. don't have the rules that um, would apply to an employer or their agents with respect to the do's and don'ts and, you know, the tips and info and all that sort of stuff, right? Right. We get to, we get to be union organizers against unions. Frankly, right. I mean, it's, it's, you get to use all of the same strategies, organizing strategies. And again, it's employee driven. So it's, it's spy versus spy. It's the employees here versus the employees, here. you know, two sides of the same coin who runs the better campaign. Um, and that's, I, I wouldn't say there's a typical entry point. Um, you know, we've done the largest railway labor act decertification in U S history. Um, that was a bunch of, uh, pilots, hmm. uh, airline pilots, about 600 of them. Um, we've done, and this is, you know, private sector stuff. Now we've done, uh, recently did a poultry plant in Delaware where half of the members spoke Spanish and half of them spoke Haitian Creole, two different bargaining units. Um, you know, so we, now do you guys go in and, and, you know, stay at hotels in the town and deal directly with them or is this via zoom or is it telephone calls or again, it could, it, it depends on the situation. Um, you know, it depends what their needs are, depends on what their level of organization is. Um, you know, we basically meet, the goal is really just to meet them where they're at and provide the resources to, to help them make it happen. Um, whatever that looks like. So yeah, if, they, if we need to go on the ground, we can do that. Um, you know, and that's, that's sort of my my happy place as a teacher now that we've we've been able to decertify and help help teachers in almost forty school districts now in seven states um, decertify the NEA. Hmm. Um, so that's been that's been a lot of fun. I always have that four hundred thirty five dollar agency fee in the back of my mind every time I every time I do that. It's just right. It's uh, yeah, but. Um, so a lot, of, to, a lot of the work would be like helping the the employees develop their own flyers and you know here's the link to the DOL's website and stuff like that. Sure. Yep. Okay. It's the yeah, it's the edu- right, educating educating people. Um it's the same thing you would almost the same thing you would do and you're you're familiar with the management side running a campaign and all the, all the handcuffs and pitfalls oh, yeah. and you have to jump through there. Imagine if you just took that all away and said, Hey, 
like lay it all on the table. Here's the good. Here's the bad. Here's the ugly. Speak freely. You don't have to worry about tips and foe. It's just, it's all there. Here's the facts. It's, it's a lot more fun when you don't have to worry about a bruzo breathing down your neck. Right. Well, you know? I had I had the opportunity probably, well, it's close to 10 years ago now, um, to help a group of employees down in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the most fun types of campaigns I've been involved with because it was literally running a, what I would refer to as a union campaign against the union. Mm-hmm. And, you know, exposing all their you know, weaknesses and crevices and the backdoor deal that they did and all that sort of stuff. And that, right. that wasn't necessarily a desert, but the employer happened to be pro union as well. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, helping those employees and, you know, just like laying it out there for them. Here's the law. Here's what the union did to you. Here's their sweetheart deal that they worked behind your back. You know, right. So, right. Yeah. It was a blast. That's- yeah, and that's you know with with all of them, but but specifically with with the teachers unions. Um, this was another thing. I think you and I got into a little discussion about this before too. Was providing the independent local as an option, which yeah. for a long time rubbed against the grain of everybody in this space because it, it became it tends to be a very binary thing: unions good, unions bad. Um, you know, in one of my one of my first experiences in the labor space, um, had a I was sitting at a meeting with about twenty five people uh, from around the country talking about just you know the the wake of the Janus decision and labor and what was going to happen and all this kind of stuff and and there was a lot of hand wringing when it came to teachers unions and it was like no 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 let's just worry about everybody else just not don't worry about teachers unions and I said no it's just because you don't know how to talk to teachers I said. What we need to make it easier to do is create unions. And I could see the room. There was like a collective gasp, like who invited this Marxist into right, the room? Right. I said, no, 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 no. Hear me out. And I, I, you know, I laid it all out like we just did here a few minutes ago about the overhead, just practically speaking, take the politics out of it and look at the overhead. Look at, you know, where the money is spent, how the money is spent. If you keep your dues local, you keep your money local, do it all local. Um, show them a way, show them an alternative and, you know, the, the work is done for you. Um, would you rather go and, you know, be forced, be forced to, it's, it's almost like the school choice argument, right. That, that we see out there. Um, give people options, give them alternatives. Don't, don't hide the options from them. Make, make the pathway more accessible and maybe, hey, if you want to start a restaurant, you're not going to be forced to buy one of the big franchises. You can start your own restaurant with your own theme, you know, and keep all your money in your own restaurant rather than paying your franchise fee to McDonald's or Burger King or whoever. Um, you know, there's there's different models out there and just show them all the different models in addition to the AAEs and Christian educators and, you know, all the state-based options. Like, like in Pennsylvania, we have KEDA, Keystone Teachers Association here. Um, if you lay all those options on the table and you don't just give them the menu, you show them how to get from point A to point B, um, people are going to be much more receptive. Well, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of employees probably public sector, definitely private sector don't realize that they have just as much power without a union or a formal union that they do with. 
You know, mm-hmm. like workers have the right to strike. And really, if you're looking at, I don't care whether it's the Teamsters or any other union, you know, the their whole power comes from your feet if you're a worker, right? So their negotiating power at the bargaining table comes from your ability to go out on strike. You still have that power without a union. As long as two or more are doing it, you, know, mm-hmm. you have the right to strike. And, in fact, without a union, there's less restrictions that are on that would be on union members were they to go out on strike because a union can sanction you if you're you know going out on strike like a wildcat strike stuff like that right, right and that that ironically is what we saw in a lot of the headlines last year where you had probably two to three times more strikes with non-union workers than you did with union workers where people were just collectively walking off the job because they're pissed off about something or they didn't like, you know, short staffing or whatever. They weren't union. Right. In fact, in, in, there's a guy in Pennsylvania. um, He's out by Pittsburgh. His name's Mike Elk. He runs a payday report. I don't know if you've ever seen that. He's a pro union. It's a pro union publication, Um, but he was running a strike tracker throughout 2021, 22. And the majority of the strikes that he had on there were non-union strikes. Interesting. Yeah. Check it yeah. out when we're done. Is it's it's paydayreport.com, I think. Okay. But here's um yeah, it is it is interesting to watch coming out of the pandemic how many non-union strikes there were. Yeah. Well, like, and I think there's been don't you think there's been a, a an uptick too in order to bring awareness to unions? I mean, as their numbers are dropping. Um you know, one of the things that I was I was harping on. We did a did a decertification out in Western Pennsylvania, um, Greensburg, a couple of years ago. It was one of my one of my first campaigns that I ran, um, and the uh, the guys that were that were pushing it, um, they really they knew they weren't going to have the votes just to straight up decertify. So, and it was an AFL CIO affiliate, Utility Workers Union. And um, ironically, the guy that initiated all this was the 40-year union president. Um, oh, really? Yeah, That's he's the fine. guy that said, "Yeah, we're done with them. We're we're sick and tired of watching our union rep rolling in here, you know, making a deep six-figure salary and driving a brand new car every year off our dues." Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, so they they wanted to break away, but they knew they weren't going to have the votes to just straight up go no union. So that's where then we kind of literally helped them organize the independent local. Um, so it's funny because I can say, um, technically speaking, I've created more unions than probably Becky Pringle and Randy Weingarten. <laughs> technically, technically. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's not, it's not affiliated, just not affiliated. That's it. That's it. So, yeah. Yeah. On the DOL's website, um, and a lot of, for this more for the listeners, but a lot of times if you go to the DOL's website, which is, you know, OLMS, Office of Labor Management Standards, and you go through the list of unions, like the AFL-CIO has 57 national unions or 56, whatever the number is these days, and then they all have their locals. But then if you go down that list, there's a ton of unaffiliated unions on the DOL's website. And it's mm-hmm. it's where people have created their own thing, Yeah, in many yeah. cases anyway. And I think that's what... In particularly the NEA and AFT fear the most is their locals are going to go out and start doing this. I mean, the more they squeeze, 
you know, they know there's going to be individuals who leave, but when you can get, when you can get entire bargaining units leaving in mass, that says something. Right. Um, and, and I knew I was on to it in 2019. Um, the NEA changed their, changed their bylaws for a, dis, a disaffiliation. So disaffiliation, you're still working under the, under the rules of the, you know, the larger union. Um, but they, they changed their bylaws to require a two thirds majority rather than a, rather than a simple majority to disaffiliate. They changed it to a two thirds majority to disaffiliate back in 2019. So they, they already saw this coming and I thought, okay, if, if that's what the $1.6 billion NEA corporate is afraid of, maybe we should really be taking that more seriously. So it, it, for me, it became more of just a, more than just a concept to, okay, if this is what they're trying to shore up against, maybe there's some validity to this thing. So uh, that's, that's kind of why I started to embrace it a little bit more enthusiastically in the, the, the deeper down the rabbit hole I went. So Interesting. Yeah. So how, how much of your work or CIE's work um, would you guesstimate that is public versus private sector? Um, probably the bulk is still private. Um, but we're seeing an uptick in, and particularly in education, hmm. um, as charter schools and other, you know, private school alternatives start to pop up, unions are beginning to look at them as opportunities to, to, uh, organize. Yeah. After years and years of trying to keep them out of the, you know, out of the business, so to speak. Right. Right. So it's, it's fascinating to me that a teacher would vote to unionize under a union that try literally tried to keep them from existing. Right. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're starting to see more, more emphasis on these charter schools and targeting charter schools and, and, uh, you know, other, other non-traditional options. Um, and that's, well, that's been a, a kind of a new, I'll say a new venue for us. I think you're onto something. We were talking about this a little while ago, but I think you're onto something with respect to the providing a constructive alternative because the, the fear factor of bringing in, bringing teachers in, so to speak, because it's the liability insurance and, mm-hmm. you know, the, whether it's the NEA or AFT, they're offering this plush insurance policy. So if you get accused of I don't know, slamming a kid against the wall or whatever you're accused of, you've got at least an insurance policy to cover your legal costs and whatever else. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the constructive alternative that people don't know that there's other entities out there or other ways right. to get the same thing without getting tied into all the politics and all that sort of stuff. Right. Correct. Yeah. And that's, it's a big lift. I mean, you know, when you're, I think one of the frustrations that you'll hear is access, you know, unions in a lot of these districts will claim, Hey, we're the exclusive representative. You can't let anybody else in here. And a school board that is either, you know, bought and paid for by the union or is just simply unaware, um, they'll 
they'll just say, oh, yeah, well, exclusive representation. Yeah, we can't let any competing organization in here. But they don't understand these are not C5s. These are not unions, per se. They're not a competing union. They are professional associations. They're C6s. Um, so, you know, trying to get trying to get these organizations access to uh, would-be members has been a real challenge as well. Well, and I, I think the um, problem that you guys, and I'm just kind of lumping you into this, but in that space is, you know, you've got to have an employee or a teacher who's motivated enough to actually push it, right? Mm-hmm. Like yourself 10 years ago. Right. And so if you don't have that, you know, and you said it yourself, you know, you've got 90 papers to grade, you've got, you know, the bell going off and kids screaming in the hallways and all that stuff. It's hard to do that on your own time. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, to mention to being be. motivated enough to do that. Right. And even if you are motivated enough, I mean, that motivation only, you know, that'll only last as long as you can find the resources to keep you moving forward. You know, once, no matter how motivated you are, if you can't, if you want to run a marathon and you're a quadriplegic, I don't care how motivated you are. You can't go anywhere. You're, you're stuck where you are. Right. Um, it's, it's, you know, the challenge of connecting the opportunity with the resource. Um, and that's, that's really kind of where I've on a personal level sort of found my, my stride has been, um, helping policy groups, public interest, law firms, um, basically anybody on, on the policy side connect with a teacher who reaches out on the education side or, or an employee who reaches out, Hey, here's what's happening. I need help. Um, and I, I think there's been a, there's been an underselling of the value of on the ground relationships uh, because everything has gone so virtual. Now there's, there's a, um, a tendency to get, to get relationally lazy, I'll call it. Um, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to take the time to go drive somewhere and sit with somebody and hear their concerns because we can do that through email or a phone call. Right. Um, but there's a physical proximity piece that adds credibility and the human connection. And that is something that I see unions willing to do. And frankly, you know, in the space I work in, hey, if we can do this through social media, we'll do it through social media because then we don't have to send somebody out there to have beer and nachos. Um, And that's, I think that's a, it's an unfortunate um, miscalculation in terms of of where you place resources and human capital. Um, I think you've got to have a balance. Mm-hmm. Because unions are certainly unionizing people through things like oh, yeah. Zoom and and Facebook and all that stuff. So you've got to be able to do both, right? And you have to have you have to have a network to to build, right? right. And I don't think I've always said the left thinks collectively, the right thinks individually, and so True. to expect to expect anyone to try to put together a coalition to offset the union messaging. I, I, I don't know if I'm chasing, chasing waterfalls, TLC. Uh, I don't know if, 
I don't know if that's a an unreasonable ask or I think there's some groups that play nicely together on the right and others that are um they just hold their their cards close to the vest. Mm-hmm. And they do that for a variety of reasons whether it's fundraising or they just, you know, this is my sandbox and I don't want anybody else in it. That's why I've noticed years and years ago, which is why I don't really get involved in that stuff anymore. <laughs> well, I'm even thinking, you know, aside from the, away from the policy space and all the wonks and all the think tank offshoots and everything, just on the ground, there's not, there's not an interest in, I'll say collective pushback. It's, I got what I wanted. I'll keep mm-hmm. my head down and go quietly about my business. You know, there's not a, there's not a force multiplier. Right. Um, and I guess that's, you know, one of the things that I saw when I was still in the classroom, we've got a lot of teachers who have their, their PSEA bumper stickers, their union bumper stickers that they'll put mm-hmm. on the classroom windows. And it's just a way of, you know, it's just a way of showing their, you know, hashtag solidarity. Um, right. Among their faculty. It's not like kids, Kids aren't paying attention to that stuff, but it is a, and this is an interesting argument I'd love to make sometime. It is a, it is a political statement, right? If, if the Supreme court has ruled that public sector unions are indeed political, inherently political, and you are putting this bumper sticker anywhere, that is an inherently political statement that students can see. Then I would love for a teacher to take a political statement and put put their AAE sticker or their you know their Kita sticker or their Christian educator sticker and stick it on their door and embrace the outrage and just like let that play out, um, you know because it's. I don't think you'll see it because most people don't like confrontation. Oh, but and it's again, so much you got to get fun. The, it's that ten percent of the <laughs> troublemakers out there. Yeah. Yeah. They're out there though. You know, I think that's the, the, the troublemakers are out there. The agitators are out there. It's just, I think when you're talking about agitation, there's, there's typically traditionally, we've only ever thought of it from one side. Right. So, yeah, but it's so much fun. So yeah, I would encourage, I would encourage more of it. It's, it's good times. (laughs) So Keith, we've been on for close to an hour. Um, how, if I'm an employee, how do I get hold of you guys? Well, you can go to our website, um, center for independent employees.org. Um, or you can reach out to me directly at Keith at center for independent employees.org as well. Cool. Well, we have a lot more to discuss and I'm thinking as I do this, um, if I can get the guests together, I may have to do separate interviews with the teachers that I want to get on because it's One's out in the West. The other is on the East Coast and and moved here from the West. Former California teacher now here in the Southeast. So it's going to be a interesting. I want to yeah. find out what's going on in the classroom, if it's any different. I tell my friend all the time, you know, because we grew up together and went to high school together and all that stuff. I was like, I can't believe they let you teach. So <laughs> some of the stuff that we did. Yeah, yeah I know. Well, I think that makes that makes for a good teacher, though, right? I mean, we, yeah. there's not as much that can get past us if we did it ourselves. We, oh, we he's a great teacher. Game. It's just it's like we did some wild crap in high school. So 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, but you know, again, I think when you're talking about teachers, the perception on the, the perception tends to be that teachers are more left leaning than we really are as a, as a body. Um, and there's, there's plenty of studies that will, you know, that will say teachers are generally a, a cross section of the population. Um, maybe slightly center le- center left but not like libs of tiktok left not you know what what a lot of the policy groups would have parents believe um, well i think that's part of the problem with the policy groups going after you know the teachers who are you know you guys are doing this or crt or trans stuff and all that i think there's a minority who are doing that but the vast majority probably isn't and right. then as a result of that, though, they're getting attacked just like the minority is, or they're mm-hmm. feeling attacked. And I think that's unfortunately part of the problem on the right is they just broad brush everything. Sure, sure. Well, and if, if I can if I can make you feel attacked, I can I can keep you in the tribe. Right. Yeah, and, and Randy Weingarten's doing a great job doing that. Yeah. So in any case, well, I thank you for coming on Labor Relations Radio. It was fun. Absolutely. Yeah, it has been. It has been a good time. I we'll do it again sometime. It. I just, I have people on just to have fun conversations. So, yeah, I appreciate it. And I like your intro and outros too. I got to get some Tyler Childers in there. Yeah, I can't, I can't get licensed to that. So I try to get uh, only licensed stuff, but yeah. Yeah, I would, I would love to. So, <laughs> in any case, we'll talk Very soon. Good. All right. Sounds great. Thanks again. Sure. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Keith Williams with the Center for Independent Employees. And I'm going to leave a link to their website as well as a couple other links under the audio portion of this episode. If you're an employee and whether or not you're unionized, want to know more about your rights, whether or not you live in a right-to-work state or non-right-to-work state, be sure to check them out. Um, They do offer resources for employees who are either represented by unions or not represented by unions. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out on Twitter, go ahead and reach me at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Oh, Black Queen, take me to that place. Wash my You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.